Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Retton, who is one of Britain's leading social justice lawyers with clients that have included Occupy protesters and blacklisted trade unionists. He also writes regularly on law and justice for The Guardian and The London Review of Books. I'm grateful to speak with him about his thought-provoking new book, Against the Law, Why Justice Requires Fewer Laws and a Smaller State, which somewhat counterintuitively argues, as the book title suggests, that fewer laws in a smaller state would actually advance the goals of equity and workers' rights. David, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Sean. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Let's start by way of biography. Your online bio describes you as a social justice barrister. Why don't you tell listeners about you and your worldview? How did you come to the law, and what values animate you and your work? I suppose I'm kind of an unusual figure, certainly in Britain anyway, because um, I'm actually from um, a very um, posh and, and even kind of traditional conservative background. I went to Eton College, which your listeners may know may is the same school that's produced two of our last three prime ministers. I then grew up, one of my uncles was the chief whip in Margaret Thatcher's conservative government, the man who... Um, famously had the job of being the man in the grey suit who had to knock on the door and ask her and tell her her time was up. When I was in my 20s, I worked in universities and I just sort of drifted into working for the trade unions that represented university lecturers. And then about 15 years ago, I became a barrister and it just seemed a very natural progression. I'm definitely left of centre and it seemed quite a natural progression to represent, you know, workers rather than employers, tenants rather than landlords and so on. If we can shift to the book, as you've just outlined, your political commitments and preferences are firmly to the left, yet the book's subtitle suggests that you want a smaller government. Help me and listeners understand this point. Aren't leftists or progressives supposed to be for bigger government? That's exactly the thing. When I first came around the left, like in the mid-1980s, at a time in Britain, things like the miners' strike, which I'm sure lots of your listeners um, know about, you know, when those things were going on, the whole way politics worked was that the left was for changing things, breaking them up, starting over. And it was the right that was for keeping them the same. And, you know, that's why our main party on the central right in Britain is called the Conservatives, because they were about keeping all those things the same. Now, one of the things that, that I kind of noticed, and, you know, I'm, I'm quite old, I'm 49 years old. So, you know, I've been through several generations of politics, is that there's this kind of strange transformation that's taken place. Now, these days, it's the right that wants to change things, wants to break things up, wants to make everything anew. 
and and the left either as you say you know we just talk about slowly building the state slowly increasing maybe welfare reforms in the interests of one group or another but we're always in favor of keeping what we've got against these other people who, who talk about taking the laws and rights away now kind of what i want to point out in my book is that if you take a few steps backwards and you don't need to be left wing or right wing to this anyone can go through this process all of us are surrounded by vastly more law than there was 30 or 40 years ago. I'm not talking about whether the law now is good or bad. All these individual laws, you know, should we have a law against theft? Yeah, of course. Should we have a law against murder? Yeah, of course. But all these individual laws are fine. But what they do is they leave people feeling absolutely powerless in their lives. Like they're the product of forces they don't control. So, you know, I don't know if this would work in Canada. It seems to work when I talk to people in Britain. I ask people, you know, do you know what's in your employment contract? Do you know what rights you've got, which ought to be in your employment contract, but the employer forgot to put in? How about your tenancy contract? Do you know what's in that? Do you know what um, rights you've got or you don't have when you sign up for an insurance policy? And the truth is we're all more and more bound together by these relationships over which people have a greater and greater sense of, of powerlessness. And I just think that's bad for democracy. Um, if you want to think about, say, why in our time we seem to be producing these politicians who are sort of quite paranoid, quite destructive, and voters really engage with them, I think it's because that sense that all these things are going which they don't control. I'm not saying this is all of it, but I'm saying it's a part of that process. And it just seems strange to me that the right keeps on talking about that, but no one on the left in Britain, in France, no one I know of, say, in the United States talks about that process and starts to say, well, look, are the laws that we've got, are they actually delivering what we want them to do? To your point about uh, the transformation of the left and the right, in, in a recent precursor to the book for the left-wing journal Jacobin, you draw on Marx to argue that the modern left has put too much emphasis on the state's lawmaking function at the expense of progress being achieved through social movements. Can you please help us understand your argument why, in your view, has the right been more Marxist than the left over the past 50 years? Well, uh, first of all, I don't know that, that anyone had a plan of this, you know. But one of my great beliefs about history is that people just are in a situation and they make choices and things work. And they don't go into it. The, the really successful politicians don't go into it with, with a plan, which is what they end up with. They improvise and things work, so they keep on doing them. But look, the, the article you're talking about for Jacobin was very much based on, on again, something I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with, the recent case which overturned Rowan Wade. So we've had for 50 years, lots of people on the left have regarded this as an absolutely totemic issue. Abortion, we have to defend this. If you're not defending this, you're not supporting women's rights. But the problem we've got at the end is that for whatever reason we can go into, but at the end, after 50 years, you have a, a change in the Supreme Court. And suddenly, that 50 years of, of hoping this would be like this, this huge protection is just gone. And, you know, I, I suppose part of the reason, if you just look specifically at uh, Roe v. Wade, part of the reason it went like that is because, of course, the right had lost. You know, people who lose in a big historical battle, the first thing they do is they look around, they say, this isn't working. <laughs> they look around and they change tack and they went towards building their base and towards creating not necessarily a majority, because, of course, all the polls, as I understand them, seem to suggest that most Amer Americans would actually like there to be abortion rights. But the right went back to their base. 
energized people, persuaded politicians that this should be a central issue, and they mobilized enough people. One of the things I find extraordinary about the left is we seem to be losing that tradition, and that's on every issue, whether it's abortion, whether it's workers' rights, whether it's whatever other thing you care to talk about. We're so good at thinking, how are we going to frame this argument by this institution of power will accept it? Um, but we're losing sense that actually in a democracy you win because most people agree with you. And we're also losing a sense that, you know, some of these institutions might have quite long-term reasons. You know, I, I don't think in the United States, say, there's any particular long-term reason why the Supreme Court should be before or against ab abortion. But if you want to talk about some of the other big things, which the big battles which the left has lost in the Supreme Court in the last 10 years, for example, about campaign funding, there are all sorts of reasons why the law tends to go certain ways and is only ever going to be a temporary ally, particularly to kind of outsider movements on the left. As you say, David, a key argument in the book is the idea that, as you put it, quote, the wider the law expands into society in each of our lives, the smaller the space it leaves for moments of resistance. Uh, let me ask a couple of questions. What particular areas of law stand in the way of resistance? And at this stage, should social justice activists reorient some of their attention and energy to reversing these rules and laws, even if it delays progress on their main goals. In, in other words, is, is it your argument that the left ought to be more focused on, in the short term on means rather than ends? Maybe if I could take that second question first. I kind of think it's the other way around. It's almost we've been too focused on means and not enough on ends. You know, if you think about, for me, and, and again, I appreciate some listeners will, will find this an attractive argument, some may not, but for me, one of the really key questions facing the world right now is that global warming is heading right ahead of us. You know, we're trying to stop 1.5 degrees worth of warming, we're starting to try and stop 2 degrees worth of warming. But the problem we've got is that every time a bit of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, it sticks around, and some of it sticks around for hundreds of thousands of years. So the budget we've got in terms of the amount of carbon we can burn before absolutely warming the whole planet is really small and we're using it up really fast. Now, that, to my mind, poses a really key question to the left. And, and on this one, I don't particularly say the answer is means or ends, but I, I think at least we need to confront the problem. The problem goes like this. If we made a system of environmental courts and we staffed them with the people who've been judges in Britain anyway for the last 40 years... They just wouldn't be interested in environmental law because effectively we've got none at the moment. You know, they've never used it. They've never spoken that language. It'd be completely weird and strange and alien to them. So create a system of environmental courts and there's real risk you'd get neutralized very quickly. But turn that round. If you don't do that, if you're trying to make that transition without any help from the law at all, that's, I can't see how that's going to happen. So some of my book isn't really about saying the answers, means or ends. Some of it's saying, look, some of these are just dilemmas. And really what you need to do is see the dilemmas, confront them, notice they're there, and then work out strategies for them. But until at least you know they're there, you're powerless. You don't know what's the right way to get through them. I have a friend, David, who has experience as a labor organizer. And one of his arguments is that by advocating for government rules and laws about employment, including minimum wages, benefits, etc., unions have essentially socialized and in turn cannibalized their own function. What's behind that in your view? Is it magnanimity, political naivety, or, or something else? Well, I, I can best describe that process in Britain. and I really don't want to pretend that it happens the same everywhere, you know, in every country, because you can just get things completely wrong. But what happened here is that, you know, we didn't have any individual employment law until 1972. 
the government that brought it in faced the biggest strike wave in British history because trade unions were against it. Uh, and it sounds very counterfactual. Why on earth would unions be against the extension of rights to workers? But they were. They didn't necessarily know all that was going on, but they totally sensed. It wasn't the only thing they were against. They were against other things in the same bill. But they sensed, if we do this, it's going to make things a lot tougher for us. Workers largely ignored the courts for about 15 years. Then we had the miners' strike. We had big rise in unemployment in the mid-80s. Unions were terrified about keeping hold of jobs. And it was at that point that whether it's unions or individual workers just drifted into using these courts, whereas before they'd been ignoring them. Now, what that does to a trade union, and again, you know, say my background was I worked in unions, I was a national official of unions, and now I'm a union barrister. So I'll try not to make this too detailed. I don't want to put off any listeners who are interested in the other parts of my argument, but I, w- I want to convey this because sometimes it's the, de- it's the detail which gets it, yeah? Um, under the old system, when you didn't have like individual employment law, if someone was sacked, they were dismissed, and they asked for their job back, all the stats show that on average they got their job back about a third of the time because they're strong unions, the the employers didn't want to antagonise them. These days, if you bring a claim to to the tribunal for unfair dismissal, you can ask, not just for money, but for your job back. But right now, fewer than one in a thousand claims which make a final hearing end in an order reinstating the worker. So the courts don't want to force employers to take back workers if the boss doesn't want it. So, So workers are worse off, but the real killer is in the unions themselves. Because in every workplace, people do what we call casework. You know, they try and represent one worker, represent them well. They try to learn the law. They try and make themselves like a lawyer. And they have to build up this vast amount of knowledge about something which is constantly changing. It sucks away their time. It stops them doing the things which unions are for. And you end up with, with essentially union membership being sold to members. It's this really bad bargain. You know, if you give me £100 a year and you're sacked, then um, you'll be guaranteed to get a lawyer. Problem is you can't possibly be guaranteed to get a lawyer because if you were sacked, it cost a lot more than £100 to represent someone through the system. It cost tens of thousands of pounds. So then unions market themselves to members as a kind of legal insurance scheme that soaks up their budgets and it, and it turns them into something very different from what they used to be. And that, of course, is a huge issue because, you know, um, if nothing else, yeah, certainly in Britain, unions are our largest voluntary association in the country. Even after years of, of attacks on them, we've still got something like six or seven million people in unions. You know, work is such a large part of all we do. To, to see a social movement vanishing out of all our lives has made all sorts of consequences, which people most of the time don't even see. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Seems to me a, a good example of the thesis of the book, which is there's an inadvertent consequence to an ever-expanding role for government rulemaking and lawmaking at, at the expense of alternative forms of social organization, including trade unions. David, in another essay from June 2022, you argue the following, quote, we need a different approach in which protesters disregard the law and choose instead to build up instruments of popular power 
protest campaigns, movements, and political parties. They would choose mass organizing over submission to the limits of the law. What does this mean in practice? Are, are you calling for lawlessness? <laughs> well, some of the time, yeah. I mean, I mean, again, take the example of, of the environment. One of the really interesting social movements here um, is something called Extinction Rebellion. Uh, again, I don't think you know if you have it in Canada, but what's fascinating to me is about the people who are attracted to it. They're people who are very often retirees. They're often people who had quite middle of the road, even maybe like sort of centre-right politics most of their lives, but they're really passionate about the environment. Um, we call them teal because they're green on the environment and blue on the economy. <laughs> but these people have been, tr- they're so worried about the destruction of the environment that in, in literally hundreds and thousands of people have been occupying the roads and saying, the only way we can get the government to really take notes and do all the changes that we'd need, whether that's in Britain, that would mean changing the insulation of our homes, stopping the sale of the, of the cars which produce the most pollutants, whatever. Um, that will only happen if people take to the streets. The other thing I want to say, though, again, because, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm not really saying like, you know, in Shakespeare, there's there's a riot somewhere in Shakespeare and, and the one of the protesters shouts, kill all the lawyers. And, and <laughs> this character is not a good character. <laughs> you know, they're drunk. And, but, um, I'm not really saying kill all the lawyers, obviously. I, I'm one myself. But I think what I'm saying certainly for lawyers is maybe you need to have a sense that even the, the biggest legal victories, the things which you're proud of, which have really changed the law, often they come about because actually there's a movement on the streets and the judges are conscious of it. And it, that's the thing which changes the balance of the arguments in the courtroom. So again, you know, we could talk about their famous examples from American history, the trial of the Chicago 7. Or in Britain, you could even talk about quite a small thing, like just in the last few weeks, there was a huge argument here about flights to Rwanda. I'm pretty confident that, that the thing which tipped it, that the government kept on winning, winning on the courts, they won and they won and they won until they lost. And one of the reasons why they lost is, is that, you know, there's just this huge moment. You know, this is 2022. You know, there's something like 100,000 refugees um, from Ukraine and Britain. And who's holding them in their homes? And I think generally, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's more conservative families than social democratic families. It's the people who really care about their local church and just believe that it's right, that someone should be able to flee a war of that, that on that scale. And it just public opinion shifted in a really unexpected way. All sorts of people said, no, actually, we, we might not be in favour of migrants in general or forever or whatever, but right now we, see un- we understand why, why that right exists. And, and if you don't have that public opinion on your side, the best legal argument falls flat. Listeners will know in a recent episode, we spoke to Canadian legal thinker Asher Honickman, and one of the issues that we discussed was a change in the Supreme Court of Canada's interpretation of the charter with respect to the question of assisted dying. Uh, In the early 90s, the court didn't find a right within the charter to assisted dying. And in 2015, it did. And fundamentally, it seems to me that was at least in in part a a response to its perception of changing popular opinion and the efforts of social activists. So your point about uh, the courts is well taken. Let me come back to your Jacobin essay. You write, quote, the task for the left is to find a way of talking about the law in which we take seriously the ideal of human freedom without forgetting for a moment that every right exists only because people fought and died for it. Why do you think that parts of the modern left have forgot this point? How much of it is explained by a modern complacency? And how does the rise of social media play on to that story? To what extent are modern progressives, like many modern conservatives, involved in a form of play activism online? 
Well, there's definitely some of that. You know, you can look on both sides of British British politics and and just feel sometimes you're watching like battle reenactment societies. You know, that there are we've got a conservative election right now, and everyone's trying to summon the ghost of Margaret Thatcher. You know, and she's been dead 32 years, and well, she's been out of office 30 years, and it just won't work. She engaged with British voters at a time for a set of reasons, and a lot of those reasons, like low inflation then, high inflation now, change the arguments now. And none of those politicians grasped that. So, yeah, definitely too much social media, you know, encourages a kind of um, an attitude where you crowdfund rather than organizing a crowd. But I also think one thing I want to talk about is I'm not, I'm not trying to say people on the left are like stupid or foolish for making these mistakes. I think part of what's going on, and this goes back to the example I gave in the context of employment. I mean, you said, why on earth is, is the left suddenly very blithe to what's going on with rights? Uh, and one of the reasons people are, I think, is because actually we're very familiar with rights being used in a way that doesn't seem to produce more democracy or at least more social democracy. You know, when we had a the kind of big transformation in, in British life here, away from a very collective and solidaristic society to a much more individualistic one. A key moment in it was changes in housing, which were called the right to buy. And that's kind of created a kind of, I think, a popular cynicism about rights and a disbelief in them and a kind of real difficulty. And I think this, this is true on both sides of the political divide, a real difficulty in grasping you know what's actually essential importance say about free speech and what's just a bit of partisan posturing about it and is actually just people almost misusing it and that that sense of like focusing on the part of this which really matters and which actually about 90 percent of people whatever side they're on get is something that's really worth keeping now david i need to ask a question on behalf of our conservative listeners a key premise of the book is that left-wing ideals are being undermined in this hyper legalistic system Yet many conservatives would say that on matters of race, culture, and identity, the left is massively winning the so-called culture wars. Uh, make the case that you're that they're wrong, and you're right that the fact that the left is effectively losing. Well, again, I, I, I come back to Britain. You know what? What are the culture wars about? Are, if they're about abortion, if that's a culture war, I don't think the left's winning. You say that the the left's winning culture wars on race. I don't know. It feels to me the whole thing about a culture war is that, that it's not a battle, actually, which either side can win. It, in, a, in a sense, it's a bit like the law. You know, um, someone someone might be accused of murder and that individual might be convicted or acquitted. That, there'll be a result for them. But over the end of time, it's not the whole point of the law is not to win arguments, but to keep them frozen in place. And I think the same is actually true of the culture wars, too. The, the point of the culture wars, it seems to me, is really to get um, people who hold my sorts of politics shouting at your conservative listeners and actually very little changing and all of us sort of being cross with each other when, you know, left-wing voters aren't the problem, right-wing voters aren't the problem. It, if we're worried about, you know, climate change, the problem isn't voters. The problem is that we've got a bunch of um, a bunch of companies, the old companies, that hold enough of, of, of interest in the world's oil so they can boil it they can burn it till we, we go well over two degrees. You know, I, I remember when, when that Roe Ro v. Wade was o- overturned, I remember looking at the pictures of the crowds in America and you'd see one set of people shouting at another set of people and they're both convinced that in that room 
the obstacle to all their desires is the person on the other side of that line with these two people shouting at each other. And I'm sorry, I just don't believe that. That's not why our social movements are losing. There, there are other phenomena which mean we're both losing. You know, um, the disappearance of the rich out of the tax system, which means there's not enough money to go around. Those sorts of things, to me, are much bigger problems than the fact that someone has, you know, their own opinions on whatever X issue, and I, I might disagree with them, but they're not the enemy. They're not the problem. Let me ask you a final question, David. How would things change under your vision? Would we have a less polarized politics or actually a more polarized politics? And if the latter, can you make the case for why that's actually a healthy political development? I hope that um, from what I've been saying, I'm really not an advocate of this kind of internal side-based polarization between left and right, which seems to me a zero-sum game when faced with the, with the social problems of the age. The problem is we need to find a way to those answers. You know, 50 or 100 years ago, if we had a problem, I don't know, say smoking, we worked out an answer to it eventually, is that we made it much harder to the point where it wasn't killing nearly as many people as it was. If we had a problem like, say, a hole in the ozone layer, even that was about 30 years ago, we managed to fix it despite the polarisation. I really worry, for example, over the environment, that the polarisation will in fact, in fact mean that we don't solve the problem. And then, you know, you could be a, a liberal, you could be a conservative. Neither of you is going to gain if the world's heating beyond redemption. So I, I really don't think it's about calling for more polarization. What it's about just saying is, don't think that the law has to grow forever, yeah? There's some things in, in society that actually do need to grow forever, like science. Science just needs to grow and don't put any limits on it. And maybe free speech is one of those things too. Just let people speak, let them talk themselves out on both sides. The more speech, the better. But the law isn't like that. You create laws for a purpose and you can actually reach a point in society where you just have too many of them. You reach that point and then all the other things you want to do, they don't really happen either. So I'm not saying this is the main part of the problems of all our lives. We, we have plenty of other problems too, but this is one part of it. And we never talk about it. We never see it. And just don't naturalize the law. Don't just assume it's there in all its enormity forever. We should be thinking... What are the laws we're going to need in the world in 10 or 20 years' time, which is going to face some problems much more acute than the problems we face right now? David, I said that was my final question, but if I may just slip one in in response to your answer, because I think it, it it's such an interesting observation. You gave the example of the progress that has been made on smoking, not just in Britain, but really uh, across the advanced world. In your framework, how would you explain that progress? What's the interrelationship between social attitudes and the law? Uh, in other words, was it social attitudes reflected in the law? Or was it the law, you know, using George Will's phrase, statecraft is soulcraft, that actually influenced uh, social and cultural attitudes about smoking? Well, look, listen, smoking may not be the best example for me. I, first of all, I, I really don't know. I know some of the history of campaigns in, in America to, to kind of resist the demand that there needs to be regulation of smoking. I, I, I don't know, I don't have nearly as strong a sense of where the demand for the regulation of smoking came from. So it may be that smoking's a counterexample. And it's certainly true anyway. I'm really not saying, I'm really not disagreeing with, your, with the other point you're making, which is that just in general terms, it really is the case that sometimes legal changes can transform public opinion. Um, that's something I've seen repeatedly in, in my lifetime, that things um, which 
you know, public opinion said in, in a certain balance, this is good or bad, and the law changed and, and sort of public opinion flipped then to, to meet it. If those laws connected to something which which people wanted and thought, but but both those points aside, I think you could come up with a much larger list of examples of the law changing because social movements demanded it. I really don't know if that was true. For example, smoking. But the other example I gave was talking about you know addressing the problem of the hole and, and the ozone layer, which we did as a society. We addressed it really quickly. Now. I defy anyone to, to disagree with me that, that the reason why we address that as societies is because a generation of environmentalists spotted the problem, science backed them up, and, and that movement such as it was, of that combination of people's desire seeing the problem, knowledge seemed to be on the side of the people who made that argument. That's why it shifted, because there was maybe not a huge, but certainly a real movement demanding that, that, that politicians take action. So that, that I think, I think that's the general picture. I'm not saying it's a universal picture, but that's the general picture. Rights come about because people argue for them. What I'm saying is once we've got them, we need to keep on reminding ourselves of why they exist. And if, say, something was a huge social liberation for people at one moment in history, that doesn't always mean that it has the same consequences, say, 100 or 200 years later. For listeners uh, looking for a good reminder in this regard, I'd strongly recommend they read Against the Law, Why Justice Requires Fewer Laws in a Smaller State. David Renton, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Oh, that's been a huge pleasure, Sean. Thanks, thanks so much for asking me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. <laughs>